This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ruth Wishart. I don't think I have to really introduce this person, but I will anyway. It's my very great pleasure to be chairing this session of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, you may wish to know that there's a doctor in the house and she's sitting right here on the <laughs> dais. She may not be able to do very much about your dodgy ticker, but she can turn her attention to more intimate parts of your anatomy. Sadly, only in print. She's also of late become a very famous dancer, and for fellow Glaswegians in the audience, I should say that's not rhyming slang. <laughs> She's, uh, there are some Glaswegians in the audience. <laughs> Always comforting. Um, a very successful author, her latest work is uh, all about sex, which, uh, as we all know, in certain parts of Scotland is still a four-letter word. It's a, it's a book absolutely sprinkled with fascinating information, but also sprinkled with very many witty uh, quotations, my favourite of which remains, lead me not into temptation, I can find the way myself. <laughs> Our uh, guest is also a member of a very select band of women who, after 20-odd years of marriage, is still laughing at her husband's jokes. But then... <laughs> It helps Some if your husband's name is, is Billy Connolly. Please welcome Pamela Stevenson Connolly. Well, as you can see, hardly anybody turned up, Pamela. I know. We'll just have to scrub along as best we can. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I think the first thing I have to ask you is the amazing level of honesty in the book. I know that you, you had questionnaires sent to some people, but then you did one-on-one -on -one interviews. Why do you suppose people lead their souls and much else bare in such a frank fashion? Well, not too many people answered the questionnaires, so I had to then start um, doing face-to-face -face interviews. But um, I, I actually really like talking about sex. And, um, and, and it's... Not uh, just talking about it, I feel sure. <laughs> that would be correct, Ruth. <laughs> Um, but but it's, it's, it, I know it's, it almost sounds corny, but it is truly a privilege to sit with somebody and, and discuss matters that they would probably never talk to anybody else about. And uh, to be able to do it, I mean, the people here who gave their testimonies for this book are remarkably frank. And, um, and I'm, I'm very grateful because, you know, that's really what the book is. It's, it's designed to um, illustrate. I wanted to bust some... <clears throat> some myths about sexuality, one of them being that sexuality um, doesn't last very long, that it's in this narrow gap between, I don't know, when you're allowed to do it at 21 and uh, um, at 45 you retire your pelvis. Um, and so I really wanted to show that sexuality uh, continues throughout the lifespan in, in some form, or that it can if, if you want it to. Well, I was just looking, I mean, I've just picked a decade at random, you'll understand, the 60s. Um, <laughs> and, um, I mean, there's some wonderful quotes, uh, um, you know, um, if you can just let go their need for perfection, let it all hang out and simply focus on all the wonderful sensations their body can give them, they might have the best sex they've ever experienced. So maybe you could tell us if you've had the best sex you've ever experienced. Absolutely. Um, no, it is, it is true. I mean, I was really 
very, very, very pleased that, that so many of the people I spoke to in the 60s and beyond uh, were having fantastic sex and were happy to talk about it. Many of them um, weren't bothered by some of the hang-ups that, that younger people have. I mean, they'd gotten over the, the body image thing. It's like, well, you know, I can't... Um, I, it doesn't matter um, how I look. Uh, he or she is not with me because of my body. Um, there's, there's a connection. And very often I had the sense that people later in life were really better at it. I mean, they, they seemed capable, uh, more capable perhaps of true intimacy um, than, than earlier on. Well, it stands to reason. Um, one of the things, one of the barriers to enjoying sexuality is a difficulty simply allowing, simply allowing the conversation, the, the, the kinesthetic, the bodily conversation to take place with another person, to be, I mean, that's really a lot of what intimacy is, to be able to say, look, here I am and, and, and there you are, and, and, and we don't have to be perfect, um, but we're going to have this conversation, this very, very sensual conversation. I mean, again, sensuality was one of the things that I found people later in life were probably better at, um, not just sexuality, that they, they weren't just wham-bam going for the genital uh, story. It wasn't just a, a race to orgasm. It was, it was very much that sensual connection. They understood the power exchange in sexuality. At one minute, you know, one person is, is making a statement and, and asking the other person to come along. The next minute, it, it swapped and the other person saying, well, well, no, this is, this is what, what I would like to enjoy and, 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 and come along with me and, and see how, how that works. And um, Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I mean, I could, I could probably, um, with your permission, Ruth, sort of illustrate this. In what way, Pamela? You, <laughs> you seem a little afraid. Just a mite nervous. Well, I might need the help of someone in the audience. <laughs> Is there anyone who would be willing to have a... one-on-one <laughs> -on -one sensual conversation, a bodily conversation with me? We only have one Taker. Are there more? Because I'd like a choice. <laughs> Another one there. Let me just... <laughs> I think I'm just going to push. <laughs> I'm just going to pick someone.
Tango Cat, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Leroy and I didn't rehearse that. We didn't. It's the idea about Argentine tango parallels to me sexual experiences because it is completely improvised. So it is a conversation. In this case, it's a conversation we were having in front of many people. <laughs> uh, but did you notice the way one minute he's leading something, the next minute I'm responding maybe softly, maybe more powerfully, and all of that on a sticky carpet? <laughs> Where are you, Ruth? <laughs> There's another quote in this book, ladies and gentlemen, which says, and I give you it verbatim, sometimes our 60s can bring some surprises. <laughs> that was wonderful, Mrs. Connolly. <laughs> they, if we could get back for a moment to the, uh, uh, to the book <laughs> and the contents. You've got, as I say, this in decades, you know, uh, sex in 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. Now, I know that um, children are, are often quite hostile to the notion of the parents having sex, yes. and they're certainly hostile to the notion of their grandparents having sex. Um, isn't there, how shall I put this delicately, an aesthetic consideration at some point? <laughs> There's so much ageism about sexuality, and it's true. Um, some of the people in the book have, um, have put this, you know, in, in a way that, that's really very touching and makes one very, very anxious. Um, the lack of privacy sometimes, particularly people um, living in uh, nursing homes, assisted living of, of any sort. Um, you know, sexual rights should be such that anybody is free to enjoy sexuality, um, uh, consensual sexuality, the way that they, they wish to. And um, I, I've really found that a lot of um, people do it. it. Well, it has the yuck factor, like, as, as you said, and it's really, un, it's really unfair. Um, Is there a sense in which availability and proximity become aphrodisiacs? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
definitely availability of partners becomes an issue for, for some people um, as, as they get, get older. I mean, uh, I write for the Guardian newspaper and I did get a letter from a man <clears throat> of uh, 90, was he 92 or 94, one or the other, and he said, um, uh, I'm enjoying fantastic intercourse with a woman who's 86, should we be doing this? <laughs> I was like, hell yeah! <laughs> But uh, somehow or other, the, the sort of the sense of um, that, it's, that it's somehow improper, um, very often things make it a little bit harder. But there's a lot of mythology about what happens with our bodies as we get older. And I've tried to address this a lot in the book. For example, there's a mythology out there that says that as men age, they automatically lose the ability to have erections, which is completely untrue. Um, you know, men can have erections until the day they die, and they're in the 90s and, and, and beyond, um, if, if given good health, um, given, uh, well, sex works on a use it or lose it basis. So if they um, are sexual earlier in their lives and continue, um, they usually can. Um, the, the trouble is that a lot of things can make this a little bit more difficult. Uh, certain over-the-counter medications or prescription medications can, can cause sexual problems at any part of the sexual cycle. And um, certainly some of the things that happen to us health-wise as we get older can affect sexuality. But actual sexual mechanics, the actual ability to be sexual, um, can continue. And also, it, it probably needs to change. I mean, people sometimes think that that they're sort of failing if, as they get a little bit older, they're not having sex the same way that they used to. But they're, of course it should change. I mean, it, it, it should change and be, I don't know, there's nothing wrong, for example, with being very lazy um, about sexuality. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with, with changing things completely, and very often that's, that's entirely appropriate. Um, somebody with um, arthritis, for example, might uh, need to think about the timing of sexuality, might need to change positions, might need to, uh, yes, time medication. Um, uh, I also um, spoke for the book to people with disabilities and people who uh, were, you know, had chronic illness or even, um, you know, serious, serious illness. Um, and there is an assumption out there that those people, too, um, either don't want to have sex or shouldn't have sex, or it should be the last thing on their mind, when in fact sexuality is a quality of life issue, isn't it? And, and, and you know, we should not be judgmental about that and, and allow them the opportunities. I wonder if you could satisfy my... Satisfy my what? My curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> satisfy my curiosity one point. You know how people, um, if they're doing the same thing at work all day, don't like to take their work home with them? And you're a sex therapist, a psychotherapist, you write a column on sexual healing. Um, you know, when do, do I have time for sex? Is that your question? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> you know, my husband sometimes very rudely says on stage that he wishes I'd bring my, my work home more often. <laughs> And is that a successful plea? 
Well, it has to be, doesn't it? <laughs> is it more seriously though, is it's quite difficult in a way to be married to a sex therapist because you know, quite obviously you're involved, albeit vicariously, in the intimate side of everybody else's lives. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, for someone else who was a sex therapist, let's imagine, um, it might be quite difficult for um, their, their husband or wife, you know, not to feel a little intimidated by... <laughs> by That's really what I was getting Unless at. that person um, was, was very confident in their sexuality. And fortunately... Um, that is the case. Yes. <laughs> as long as we've got that one. And I don't give him orders while we're making love. That's also very comforting. <laughs> Can we get on, as we've had a, a demonstration of your uh, amazing agility on the dance floor, um, we were talking a little bit earlier on, Pamela, about, uh, as you say, you were, um, I was going to say you were doing the day job for a long time, but maybe I mean the night job, but anyway, <laughs> you, were, um, you, you weren't in the public eye quite so much when you were writing. Um, and then suddenly you were in everybody's living room for weeks and weeks and weeks at end. And now, you know, as we've just proved, you can't walk five yards without somebody wanting to proposition you. <laughs> and that's strictly come dancing sense, of course. But I mean, did that alter the way that you lived your life? It's obviously altered spectacularly. You're looking terrific the way you look. But has it altered the way you think about what you're going to do with the rest of your life? Well, um, Billy and I moved to New York not so long ago. And uh, so, I mean, I don't have a practice at the moment because we, um, we moved from LA where I did have a practice. So I'm sort of in between uh, my, my, my sort of day job where I, have to, where I see patients all the time. Um, once I do set up a practice in New York, um, then I won't be able to travel, I won't be able to do other things. Strictly Come Dancing sort of turned up just at a point where I was able to travel and I was able to turn my attention to another project. Um, but that won't last forever. So um, at the moment I'm enjoying just, just doing some other things. I can't, I can't talk obviously for the men in the audience, but every woman in the audience would want to know how sexy you found it dancing with James every week and the rehearsals. It's <laughs> the first time she's been silenced all day, I guess. <laughs> Oh, well, James is just delicious, isn't he? Is that it? <laughs> and a fantastic dance teacher. Indeed. And... Um, Did you fancy him? Definitely. <laughs> definitely. I think, I think uh, it wouldn't have worked so well if, they, if there wasn't a chemistry. Um, um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, really, it's really hard because um, professional dancers are used to this thing, or how do you do loins locked? Um, but, but the rest of us aren't. And um, it's a level of intimacy that's sort of unearned and, and, and just happens so fast. It's, it's, very, it's very discombobulating. And sort of not just for short periods of time, it's for about you know, 10 hours a day while you're doing Strictly. So, well, how would you cope? I wouldn't, then I've got arthritis. <laughs> um, I was just thinking that the more successful you were in the show, and you were terrifically successful in the show, and the longer it went on and the more success you had, the oftener Billy seemed to pop up in the studio audience. Was that a coincidence at all? My, my, who did? Billy. Your oh, husband, Billy. remember him? Well, <laughs> <laughs> who? Um, no, he was wonderfully, and he always has been wonderfully supportive. Um, Not at all jealous? Um, no, I really hoped he would be. Um, <laughs> 
but he, he's just too secure, I guess. Um, and and I, really, I really want him to learn to dance tango or something. It would be really good. He's a really good jiver. Um, he's been trying to teach me to jive for years, and, and, and uh, I never really got it. Um, but he, he, was, he was very, I mean, he was busy um, in America, but he flew back whenever he could, and he was, uh, he was very proud. He, he really liked the costumes. He wanted me to take them home. <laughs> and you did? No, they don't let you do things like that. And also, when you see the costumes up close, uh, I heard it said, and it may even be you that said it, that while a lot of the other women on the show were saying, could you just put a bit more material in there and cover that bit up and maybe could have a wider strap there, you were saying, how much more can I take off, guys? Well, I, I did totally get into the whole thing. And I thought, well, you know, why, why should I be covering up my arms and covering up my legs? And I mean, and as I was dropping off the weight, I, um, you know, I felt really prouder of my body and I wanted to show it off. And, and then I would see the pro dancers in these skimpy little things, and I was well, you know, how many, how many times am I going to get to go out in front of 20 million people wearing a skimpy cha-cha outfit? I mean, so might as well make the most of it. I'm going to turn... And turn by the way, thank you so much, because I know there are a lot of people in the audience who voted for me. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. I'm going to, as it were, turn you over to the audience in, in a moment, but can I have one s sort of serious question? The book, as I say, is amazingly frank. Um, the respondents are amazingly frank. But we still seem to have, certainly in this country, a huge problem getting sex education right. What, why do you think that is, and what do we do about it? <sighs> well, you know, just sex education is really... Um, there's only so much you can do in schools. So the onus really comes down to, to caregivers, to, to parents and, and, and other caregivers. And it's really hard, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's very difficult to know how to pitch it. And, and if you are not comfortable with your own sexuality, it's pretty hard to have that conversation. And uh, one of, the, one of the, the, the best tips, I think, is to try to, um, try to be the kind of person who will answer questions, be an askable parent. because. I think personally that's a lot better than sort of sitting down and having the big conversation because that goes wrong so often. <laughs> um, but simply being able to um, take a question seriously, even if you don't know the answer, if, even if you don't know how to respond, to be able to say, you know what, you know, you're in the middle of a busy supermarket, for example, and you get the, the question, you know, mum, what's a clitoris or whatever it is. And then what you're going to say is, um, you know, that's an excellent question, and um, we're going to talk about this. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit hard to have, it's a longer conversation, a bit hard to have it now. We're going to have that conversation when we get home, and then, you know, be sure that, that you answer in an age-appropriate fashion. But even more than simply the, um, the, the, the aspects of sexuality that you think your child might be ready for, um, is helping them to make sense of the images that they are seeing on the internet, uh, that they are seeing in, in the media. All of us are tremendously affected by, by what we're seeing and what we're hearing. For example, even adults. I mean, who else thinks that, you know, from what you see, everybody in the world is having more sex and better sex than you are? I mean, people are very, very concerned about the am I normal question. And, and um, it's particularly confusing for kids um, that they 
that they find you know, what they're hearing in the playground uh, doesn't quite match up with their understanding, what they're hearing from an older sibling, what they're seeing uh, uh, with an older sibling and a, and a boyfriend or a girlfriend, um, can, can be so, so confusing. And so being able to um, just always be, be there. So I, I think it, it would be nice if schools got things right, but they're really not ever going to be able to do what, what, what parents and caregivers do. And it's not even the spoken answers that are so important. One of the things we've seen in studies is that it's the unspoken uh, attitudes and, and beliefs about sexuality that, um, that, that really come home to people. If I were to say to you, um, my mother always thought sex was dot 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 you know whatever came into your mind you know was it was it was it dirty was it dangerous was it fabulous was it was it you know you know you will get a picture even if your your mother or your father never spoke to you about sexuality you got a sense you know just from those those little you know a hand exploring gets slapped or a, a subject comes up at the dinner table and it's 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 stopped immediately and so you do get this you glean this sense uh, of what's going on and and those things can can take a while um to, to to change when when finally you know we're allowed to do it um how are you going to all of a sudden um become comfortable with it it, it really does does take uh, some consistent understanding and, and conversation to be able to if if these are the wrong answers given and the wrong body language and the age inappropriate responses if any of these things are so does that mean that sexual dysfunction is liable to be lifelong unless people no i mean sexual dysfunction i mean there's treatment for for most types of sexual dysfunction but you see our sexuality is is not just the physical of course it's it's a combination of you know our our attitudes towards sexuality our, our beliefs our, our religious beliefs our, our culture our psychology um, our, how we're wired, are we, are we visual, are we kinesthetic, are we more uh, auditorily wired? Um, you know, so many aspects, you know, how we relate to people, early experiences, how we, how we bonded with, with people. I mean, there's so many aspects of sexuality, the media messages that we've had, any, any uh, messages about sexuality from anyone, including uh, what we're taught in schools. I mean, all of this constitutes our sexuality. And, uh, you know, it, it, you know, sometimes there are things that um, are so negative. I mean, we essentially do live in a very sex-negative society. And very often, if I'm treating somebody for a particular dysfunction, let's say a woman who's never had an orgasm and, and wants to, would like to have an orgasm, um, very often some of the things that are at the root of that uh, might be attitudes towards sexuality that she has picked up. And, and it might not even just be about sexuality, you know, we don't teach the names of genitals to our kids, and yet it would really make sense if we did. Because when somebody is sitting in my office and they're using a term like down there, I'm pretty sure I know um, what kind of background they, they've had with regards, you know, their body and, and their sexuality. Um, we, we, we do teach, we teach boys more about the penis, but we, we don't use the word vagina, we certainly don't use vulva, we don't separate out all the parts. It would be really good if we did. Um, so there's, there's just um, uh, a, a lot of, oh, also, pleasure. Um, in our society, we tend to think that, um, that pleasure is not something 
uh, that we really should enjoy. I mean, we hardly ever use the word pleasure without the word guilty next to it. Um, somehow or other, uh, you know, other cultures are, are more comfortable with pleasure, it, whether it's sexual pleasure or just enjoying the sensual taste of a, a ripe fruit or, so, or something like that. There's, taking the time to, to enjoy visual pleasures or taste pleasures. I mean, even if we can teach our kids that, we are helping them with their future sexuality because we're introducing them to the notion of sensuality and that it's okay to take time to enjoy those things. They're not just frivolous, they're, they're, they're gifts. They're things that, um, that, 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 that I happen to think is, are really right to enjoy. Now, I know this is Edinburgh, <laughs> and I know it's the afternoon, <laughs> but you can ask Pamela anything you'd like. You know, when I've been doing book talks, you know, around, around the world, I've usually um, had pieces of paper and pencils in the audience, so people can write very personal questions, and I've pulled them out of a hat. But now Ruth has assured me that's not necessary here. So don't let me down. <laughs> um, it doesn't have to be, oh, gentlemen, yes. If you would wait for the mic, by the way, people, when they, thank you very much. Good afternoon, Pamela. Good afternoon. Uh, this is Presbyterian land, uh, guilty pleasures we know about. <laughs> uh, I suppose the question is, is really this. Um, I don't think you're someone who's easily shocked, but you might be someone who is astonished or astounded. So what in the course of your research has astonished or astounded you? And secondly, as someone who always enjoyed not the nine o'clock news, could you answer in the form of Janet Street Porter, please? <laughs> Right, I'm not often or easily shocked. Um, nothing really about sexuality um, does shock me. Um, I suppose early on it might have, but the, our training, I'm, I'm not just a sex therapist, I'm an overall psychologist, and as part of the sexuality training, um, you know, you do something called a sexual sexual attitude reassessment program, which means that you're really exposed to a lot of things. And um, as a course of my work, it's made it, um, well, you know, you wouldn't want um, to go to a sex therapist who was easily shocked, would you? I mean, that would be really a bit of a mistake. I was a professor at um, California Graduate Institute, and a student put up a hand and said, um, what do you say if somebody comes in and says, I'm having sex with my dog? And I said, your fir the first words out of your mouth should be, Alsatian or Terrier? <laughs> um, the only thing that does shock me um, is usually sort of human cruelty. Um, I mean, when I, when, I, when I get the sense that, you know, with cons um, non-consensual sex, and by the way, I'm not talking about consensual cruelty because there's a certain amount of that that is, um, that is, 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 is practiced and is, is, is consensual and part of the rich tapestry of, of uh, 
but non-consensual um, people being abused and so on, yes, that can often be um, shocking and, and, and uh, uh, disheartening. Should your second question be, did the dog consent? <laughs> More questions, please. Is there something you'd like to talk to me about? <laughs> Probably not. At least not I suppose it might surprise you to know that many people actually give oral sex to their pets. It does surprise me. Imagine it doesn't happen in this city. <laughs> there we are. Thank you. Um, sorry, sorry. Could you wait for the microphone and then there's a lady up there as well. Carry on, we'll come to you in a wee second. By the way, I would have loved to dance with you, but I did have a little plan over here. <laughs> when I saw that happen, I felt much better. <laughs> have you done any research on what I personally consider to be the myth of the vaginal orgasm? Um, I haven't done research, personal research, but um, it's one of the reasons... Uh, I mean, I, first of all, I get so many letters to The Guardian and so many questions from... I mean, a lot of, a lot of the time... Um, people think that, they, that there's something wrong with it. Women think that there's something wrong with them, and sometimes men think there's something wrong with their, their partners, um, because the woman does not have an orgasm through penetration alone. And, it, you know, it's... Nobody has ever done definitive studies about this, so we don't know percentages. Um, but probably what we seem to have gleaned, and most professionals believe, that, that most women do not have orgasms simply, you know, from, from they need some clitoral stimulation of one kind or another. Um, whether their partners provide it, whether they manage to get an angle that, that puts pressure on the clitoris, or whether they self-stimulate during, during uh, coitus. Um, but, you know, very often, I mean, you know, there's a history, history of this. Unfortunately, um, uh, the great man Freud did, sort of indicated a long time ago that there was something a bit immature or something like that about, about uh, clitoral orgasms. Um, but sometimes, you know, it's not rocket science, just teaching somebody that, that well, that's just how your body uh, works. It's hard to understand. I mean, sometimes it seems like a bit of a design fault. Um, <laughs> as uh, that, that well-known sexologist, Loretta Lynn, um, I've quoted her in the book, she said something along the lines of, why didn't they put that little button a little closer to the hole? <laughs> I imagine they're talking of nothing else in Jenner's. Um, somebody up there. Well, I think that would be a jolly good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm up here. Yes, wait, wait, wait. Oh, there you are. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, my question is this. I mean, I've just turned 70. And when we were all teenagers and just bursting with, with lust, um, nice girls didn't. And it was made very, very clear that if you were to get pregnant, there was nothing that you could do about it. There was no contraception. How do you teach young people today the difference between, uh, what shall we say, recreational sex and serious sex when you want to actually um, I mean, do you, do you teach that babies do result from recreational sex and that these babies have a life ahead of them, 20 years' worth? 
Well, how does this come into it? Because as I, going back to us as teenagers, I mean, boy, you kept your legs crossed. Mm. You had to. Absolutely. Well, you know, that, that is where, you know, the, the safety messages um, and the avoidance of pregnancy, th those are the messages that schools, in my opinion, should, should be teaching. And they're very definitely, you know, the, the bottom line as far as parents are concerned. The other thing, you know, recreational sex and serious sex, well, you know, it, again, that comes down to a different kind of conversation that um, is important to have with your kids about relationships, about connecting with another human being, about, about, um, about the expectation of, of being treated well, of the expectation of treating someone else well. I mean, all of, all of that, all of the other kind of conversations about, about interacting with human beings generally should, should also, you know, be woven into the conversation that you have about sexuality. But remember that there, you know, there, there, there really are some problems here. I mean, very definitely the, the safety message uh, needs to be very loud and clear. There was um, a study, I think I've quoted in the book, that was done in, in the United States um, with, these were adults, not, not kids. These, these were sort of young adults. And these were actually college students. They were college students. But the range of beliefs, some of them believed that you cannot become pregnant if you douche with Coca-Cola after having sex. Some of them believed you cannot become pregnant if you have sex standing up. And my favorite, you cannot become pregnant if the man drinks alcohol before sex. <laughs> The interesting thing about this study was that we've, just, you know, we know that human beings can equally hold true, true scientific knowledge in one part of the brain and this mythology in the other. So these two things can go side by side. I've just flown 30 hours from Papua New Guinea, and and there I was seeing societies where, um, you know, there there was a, a Christian religion, very very strong, and a strong belief in in Christianity. On the other hand, um, the, the the early traditional um, religion, and they both sat side by side, two completely opposing different beliefs that people were able to hold in their head. And I, it struck me as very like uh, some of the beliefs that people have about sexuality. So, um, you know, I, I agree that there uh, are, are very often. Um, problems and a, and a huge problem in imparting this, this really important message. Um, but personally, I, I think, you know, being very proactive about it and, and, that's, where it, and that's where talking very frankly about sexuality is, is so important. Thanks. Great question. More questions. Yes, somebody there. And anybody else up there? We're ignoring that section. No, nope. somebody here. Thank you, Pamela. Um, was that a marketing ploy for Coke? I wasn't sure. <laughs> you know, it darn well probably. could be. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that society has actually gone too far just now? Do you think it's a limit to how far we can go? Or do you think we've exceeded that limit now? It, too far in what? Uh, with with um, talk about sex, with the internet and all the availability of images, do you think there's a limit? Do you think we should be censoring anything? Or well, you know, no I mean, 
You know, I'm, I'm not the right person to ask about that. I mean, as a psychologist, I mean, I, I'm sort of, I just look at what's going on and sort of try to pick up the pieces. And, uh, you know, people do, I mean, young men will come into my office and say, there's something wrong with my girlfriend. And I'll say, how so? And he'll say, well, you know, she's, she's, and it turns out that her, 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 um, her vulva doesn't look the same way as the women in, in, in the porn that he's watching. And so there's a sort of, there's a, there's a, there's a notion of normality that, that is, is, is coming. I, again, I'll go back to PNG because I was, I was just there and I was, I was in a village where they'd almost ne not seen um, um, real, real you know, white people face to face. And I was talking to the chief of this village and just in the last year, the internet has turned up um, and they have telephones and you know, cell phone access. Hardly anyone's got a cell phone. But he said that, he, he, he said this wonderful, he said, sex has become very popular. <laughs> and it, what he was, he was saying was that, you know, nine-year-olds were, were actually seeing these images. You can imagine, you know, if you've never seen the internet and all of a sudden you get a flash of people having, you know, having sex um, in, you know, erotica that's, that's, you know, how, what a gap that, that must be. Um, I, I, I think it's what it is. This is the way our society's going. What we simply have to do is, is, is be aware of it and, again, help our kids to make sense of it. Um, talk about it our, ourselves, you know, realize that what we're seeing, you know, there's, there's, there's a place for erotica, but, you know, we, we, don't have, we can't expect that our sexual experiences will necessarily be, be like that. Good God. <laughs> it would be tough, wouldn't it? Uh, Catelyn Moran was here the other day um, and talking about her book and she made the point that most young people of both sexes now, most young people get their ideas about how sex should be from watching porn. Is that really a good idea? Um, well, it would be nice if they didn't. <laughs> um, again, as, 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 a, as a psychologist, you know, I don't want to be the one pontificating about where the internet's going and all the rest of it. I mean, I really sort of observe what's happening. If some, you know, and, and, and try to, to help with it if I, if, if, if I see the issue in my office or somebody wants to talk to me about it. I mean, um, there clearly are some, some, some issues out there and it just begs the question, if we were having more conversations, if we were giving more education, if we were able to understand um, erotica in its place, then all would be well. Good. More questions? Somebody there? Thank you. Hello, Pamela. Hi. You look fabulous. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, Body I, by James. <laughs> um, I just wondered, what are the most common complaints that men have about women and that women have about men, and how can we avoid those pitfalls? <laughs> Good question. Good question. Um, a lot of it is about, um, about communication. When, when your partner is not a mind reader. So, you know, sometimes again, this comes, very often this comes from, from, from background and from, from learning that we've gleaned. Let's take women. Very often women really, really follow and, and would like our partners to automatically know what turns us on. But 
what's really important is to be more proactive than that, is to, to be brave enough to let our partners know. You know, the part of the way that we develop as sexual beings is getting to know our own bodies first and then imparting that knowledge to, to, to a partner. And women really need to take responsibility for their own pleasure. Um, because, because other, I mean, what is, you know, th this notion of being good in bed, what is being good in bed? Well, there's no such thing. It's, 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 it's about being able to have that bodily conversation or even that verbal conversation uh, in a non-threatening way. To be able to say to somebody who's doing something that you don't really, you're not really enjoying so much, uh, and that, that, that platter where, when things, there's that lull where things go, are going a little bit, they're not quite on the boil like they were, to be able to say to somebody, you know, I really loved it when you were doing that thing that you were doing about five minutes ago. Could we go back to that? You know, being, being able to be very positive in the way that we're, we're, we're asking people to... Um, so a lot of men will say, I, you know, I just, I just don't get it. I'm not really sure what she wants. Um, and, and, and for women um, to be able to say, look, you know, um, I'd like to have an orgasm before, before we start having intercourse. Um, and this is how I'd like it. Um, women, some t women quite often complain sort of something along the same lines. You know, he doesn't know what I want. Well, show him, you know, show him. Um, you know, sometimes I find that, that same-sex couples are a little bit better at the communication thing. You know, sometimes it might just be because, you know, we have, you know, two women who are probably better communicators together or, you know, two men who... I mean, sometimes I, I, I see that. I mean, I think that sometimes we can learn an awful lot um, from the gay community. Um, some of the um, other complaints, I'm just... Uh, I think it really does boil down to communication. Now, when it comes to, to couples, a lot of things can go... You see, sexuality is really a metaphor for your whole relationship. So what will sometimes happen, uh, what will very often happen, is that something's going horribly wrong uh, sexually, and, and people will come in to see me, and they'll say, "If only, if only the sex was great, everything else would fall into place." And I'll say, "No, no, no you've got it the wrong way round. You know, if you didn't have the underlying resentment that you have about the fact that he's expecting you to do this, this, and this, and or whatever it is that's going on." So, so. You know, you've probably been in a situation where you were so mad at someone or you're beginning to get so resentful towards somebody, you just didn't even want to touch them. Well, that's not rocket science. You know, being able to, to work out things, being good communicators in other ways other than, than sexually um, is, is, really, is really useful as well. So um, often it's the dyad as well, and, and then we get the, the, name, the name calling. Uh, another time that you might have... Um, uh, complaints is, is when there's a disparity between somebody who wants more sex than the other person. So you've got somebody, you know, um, with, with, with more drive and somebody with, with less drive. And that's when you get name-calling, you know, you're a sex maniac, well, you're frigid, and all, all of those sort of things go on, which are not, not helpful at all. And in a situation like that, um, 
people need to be talking about it and e expressing you know, what they need in a non-blaming way, non-name-calling way, and to be able to say, look, um, you know, let's work together as partners to figure out what's going on. There might be something um, going on, somebody who simply, oh, this is a terrible, terrible, painful secret between couples. We, we haven't had sex for the last 10 years. Uh, we, we'd, we'd like to, but we're not talking about it. We wouldn't dream of telling our, our best friends what, what can we do about it. Um, this, this sort of unspoken impasse that, that sometimes happens. And, you know, there, there, there are ways to get over that. Um, but, you know, sometimes it, it, it might need some professional, you know, um, help. And, and, and sometimes it's, it's really just a matter of beginning to express, you know, well, you know, I really, I really, it was really, you know, the, the sexuality we, we enjoyed all those years ago was really wonderful and, and I'd really, I really miss it. What about you? Do you, do you miss it? Let's, let's talk about that. Well, you know, what's, what's going on with you? What, what made you shut down, do you think? You know, I mean, just being able to have those very, very basic, very intimate conversations that seem so frightening, but, but really once you start and once there's, there's no blame to it. It, it, it can happen. We're going to have to pause here for a couple of intimations. Uh, one of them is to say that when we finish, which we will very shortly, Pamela will be in the signing tent only signing copies of the book, I'm afraid, gentlemen. But she will be signing copies of the book in the signing tent. I'd like you, before we just move on to the end piece, to give a special round of applause to the signer, Joe Ross, because this is not an easy session to sign for. And the other, uh, the, you, last I, the last, the last, no, no, I'm, you, you mustn't do it because I don't want, I don't want them to be deprived of this. So could we have a quick show of hands? Who would like an encore of Pamela and Leroy? <laughs> well, well, if we, if we, if we do an encore, I mean, to, to show you that, that this is improvised, we'll, we'll choose the same music, but we'll do some, we'll do a different tango to it. I mean, it's really just about the body. And I don't, you know, I don't know how it'll work out. You know, I might fall flat on my face, but that's the thing that makes both Argentine tango and sexuality um, so, so edgy. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen and you never should. Well, don't worry about it because we've got a photographer here. <laughs> <laughs> what is sign language for vagina? <laughs> and clitoris? <laughs> and vulva? Oh, you have to spell it. Okay, and anus? <laughs> this is very edgy, Leo. Leo is going to lead me in something completely different. I'm so hot. And I've got a hump on my back, which is the microphone. Better than having it in your bra, like, strictly. <laughs> what are you going to do with me now, Leroy? That's how we feel. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
George Lingo. Thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate Pamela it. Pamela Stevenson Connolly, ladies and gentlemen. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.